You don't silence people over situations like this. It is not that type of, it's not that type of situation. Last time on Murder in Pilot Mountain, we traveled with Rhonda Blaylock's cousin down the dirt road to the spot where her body was found, nearly 40 years before her killer was arrested. Right when she was starting to open up, she was taken away. That killer, Robert James Atkins, was awaiting his next court date, charged with first-degree murder and first-degree rape, facing Rhonda's remaining relatives' thought the rest of his life in prison. Then the pandemic hit. We didn't think anything would even happen in 2020. And just as the year was coming to a close, days before Christmas, panic. We were basically told in every way possible not to speak to anyone. A plea provoking family members who had, for the most part, passed on speaking publicly, leaving them with little closure. Even before they learned even this was not a conclusion. There's certain evidence that we have that we have to hold on to. Um, and that, that speaks volumes. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy, and this is Murder in Pilot Mountain, a 40-year mystery. Wednesday, December 16th, 2020, 12.57 in the afternoon. A text message comes in from a random 336 area code phone number to my work phone. That's not out of the ordinary. But I opened it immediately, and what followed stopped me in my tracks. We were basically told in every way possible not to speak to anyone. It read, FYI, Rhonda Blaylock murder case. Everyone was contacted on 12.15 of a plea hearing for 1217, 11 a.m., Surrey County Dobson Courthouse. But we really didn't have any information that would have hurt anything. Everyone who was contacted was told to not tell anyone. It's not on court documents and said it could cause the state-appointed attorney to withdraw the plea deal. The plea, which is a slap in the face of justice to those seeking justice. You don't know how you got this, but people will not be silenced. Why did this happen so fast? Why? Is it, is it because there's more to the story that we don't know? We immediately got to work trying to confirm what I'd just read, checked online for court dates, no Robert James Atkins, no court date anywhere, never mind the next morning. And we called the clerk of court, called the jail, called the sheriff's office, even called the family. Everyone either didn't pick up or didn't have any information for us. Our best bet was to send a team in the morning, try to get permission to get a camera inside and hope for the best. And that's what we did. And what happened next prompted Kevin Thomas. So basically my mom was basically like a big sister to Rhonda. Rhonda's first cousin, the son of Rhonda's mom's sister, to sit down with us for the first time since Adkins was arrested. This was not your typical plea deal hearing. Um, the judge was only there as an assistant, if you will. The judge didn't allow our camera inside, but here are the notes. Adkins entered the courtroom, orange suit, white long sleeve shirt, his face covered with a mask, but his beard protruding out of the sides and bottom, hair still long and gray, no cuffs. They bring him out from the side room where he doesn't have to face us and they're treating him like an 80-year-old man trying to cross the street. He's got so much compassion and protection, no, no handcuffs, no nothing. 
and he's literally got a lawyer speaking to him, you know, right into his ear where he doesn't even have to focus on us. The plea deal was explained. The charges were reduced from first-degree murder and first-degree rape to second-degree murder and second-degree rape. Atkins was introduced as having a ninth-grade education, reading and writing at an eighth-grade level. The charges had been explained to him by his attorney. The second-degree murder charge came with a maximum sentence of 50 years, second-degree rape with a maximum of 40 years, a total of 90 years in prison. But in exchange for a guilty plea, it was explained the murder charge would give him 21 to 25 years, the same term for the rape, but they'd run concurrently. And then we learned during the plea hearing that both of those would be 21-ish years, 21 to 25 years, but that one of those sentences would automatically be eliminated, so we'd be left with one. Adkins agreed to the deal. Captain Hudson from the Rhonda Blaylock Task Force walked to the witness stand to summarize some of what the team had found. During the investigation, it was it had uh, been brought up that maybe the whoever picked up Rhonda uh, was driving a blue truck, but had nothing to do with the incident at all. In the weeks after Rhonda's murder, Adkins was interviewed. He'd admitted to having sex with a minor. He admitted to knowing Rhonda for six weeks. He submitted to fingerprinting and said he'd do a polygraph, but never showed up. But Adkins was never charged with a sex offense involving a minor. The original investigators were too focused on the blue truck at the bowling alley we've talked about previously, where Rhonda was thought to have been picked up. At that time, he said the last interaction he had was a couple weeks prior to... Um, or contact with Rhonda, and we found during the investigation that that was false. Hudson detailed Adkins and Rhonda had sex three or four times. At one point, he was caught by Lynn, Rhonda's mother, in their house, where he admitted he knew Rhonda was only 14. Lynn kicked him out. We sent that evidence off um, to a special lab in Pennsylvania um, to help pull the DNA out because it was deteriorated as well as, you know, the case was um, going on um, 38 years. A mixture of DNA taken from Rhonda's crotch area wasn't found to be conclusive, but that lab in Pennsylvania came back saying there was very strong support that Adkins contributed to that mixture. Kevin says the DNA was categorized as a mixture because there was possibly a third person's DNA in it. The third one we were told that it was unknown and that it would just stay in the system. Once we received those results, it helped um, uh, push us more in line of um, talking to Mr. Atkins, in which we've already spoken to him a couple times prior to that occasion uh, when the task force was formed, um, at which time we obtained his DNA. And it just helped um, bring him more into focus um, with the case. So where exactly was the DNA found back in 1980? Uh, the DNA was found on uh, Rhonda's clothing. This interview with Hudson was done after that court date, but we're mixing in information released in court to fill in the gaps. The only thing that I can say is she was stabbed 
multiple times um, there at the location um, that she was found uh, two days later after um, she left in a vehicle from Pat Tubbs. The task force found that there was a blue truck involved and the driver did pick Rhonda up, but not at the bowling alley. Rhonda and a friend were walking and got in. The friend was dropped off at home, but Rhonda was brought to the bowling alley, and better yet, the bar next door. We ended up to find out when we interviewed um, Mr. Atkins, uh, he was at the the bar at the time, Pat Tuttles, and Rhonda, um, during his interview, he come out stating that Rhonda um, ended up getting out of a teal or blue in color um, truck, um, and then he was inside and seen her and um, confronted her there. And what was he driving back then? Um, he didn't. Um, at that time, he didn't have any driver's license. So we really couldn't put any any vehicle matching um, a blue truck to to Mr. Atkins. So how did they get all the way out there? Um, well, there's that's when the, the speculation comes of um, somebody else was with them. Um, he was driving somebody else's vehicle, um, something to that effect. As Hudson put it, things progressed from there. It just makes me wonder what she really went through, you know, and how long. In court, we learned Adkins had been interviewed twice by the Surrey County Sheriff's Office at one point, saying he was afraid of his brother. In a later interview, when confronted with the DNA results, Adkins had voluntarily given his DNA to the task force, by the way, he admitted he was with Rhonda the day she died said he'd had sex with her that day. He drew a map of where he had sex with her, and it was where her body was found. But then came the bombshell. The story got twisted. Um, things that we didn't hear until December, that he blamed it on his brother, and his brother's deceased. Um, it's kind of easy to blame something on your brother who's no longer here. The brother in question was named Ernest. Ernest shot and killed himself several years ago. In an interview done in 2017, Atkins says Ernest was the one who stabbed Rhonda several times. Everything leads in that direction that she was alive. Four, five, maybe six times in her neck, in her chest. All of this being told as Kevin and the rest of the family sat in disbelief. I do remember it being said that any of the wounds uh, would have resulted in death. Didn't matter how many, it's just that any of them would have resulted in death. Um, and that's sad to know that it was kind of barbaric that she be stabbed so many times and it still wouldn't have mattered because any one of them would have been deadly. Um, I didn't know that. There, I didn't. Um, I didn't know exactly how long her body laid out um, in, a, in that field that summer, 90-some degree day, uh, until they found her, which is why her body was basically decomposed or more or less decomposed whenever they found her. 
Um, and I did read part of a report where it talked about there was, I, it might have used the word dirt maybe that was found in her mouth or maybe her nose or something. And I just wonder in my mind, was she fighting? Hudson told the court Atkins was able to describe the crime scene to a T. Just details of the crime scene, what it looked like in 1980, um, um, places of objects, so on and so forth. You could, you could tell he was reliving the incident, um, but um, he wouldn't go into detail exactly what happened. He was able to describe a lot um, of the investigation that we knew that only people that was tied to the investigation, that worked the investigation, would know to show that he was there, uh, boots on the ground. When Robert Atkins would be questioned further about his involvement, they said that he would uh, become very stern and not talk. He didn't talk about it at all. Is it because he's still haunted about it? Is it because he lived so many years with it in his, in his mind that, you know, he, he's literally just put it away. Kevin had a chance to speak to the court, saying he wished Adkins would spend the rest of his time with no hope. He was given a glimmer of hope because he literally could go back to prison. He never heard the words life in prison, no chance of parole. And we're wondering, why did, why did we even show up for? A mix of statements from Kevin, his brother, and his mother. She said it was a slap in the face not only to the family, but why is it not a slap in the face to all of those people who were involved from different task force over the years? When all was said and done, Atkins was sentenced to 21 to 25 years. Because it was almost as if the, the county level was trying to clean him off of their county list before the end of the year so that he would then be on the state list under state money as opposed to local county money. It just all happened too fast. Hudson explaining why the charges and the sentence were reduced as best he can. You always want more. Every investigator wants more. Um, every detective wants more. Um, but at the end of the day, the age of the case, uh, witnesses that are no longer living, um, it's very difficult to be able to um, put everything together and um, make sure everything comes out a court of way you way it needs to come out. So it's just it's very difficult because of the time frame um, and the years uh, between the incident and now. Uh, things have changed. DNA has changed. Uh, the way evidence is processed, the way evidence is handled, um, how people are interviewed today compared to how people were interviewed back then, um, discovery, um, things you have to keep now that you didn't have to keep back then. Um, it's, it's a big difference in the change of the lawsuit, but they have to try a defendant of when the crime occurred by how the sentencing is arranged then. Yeah. So you have structured sentencing now. So if this crime occurred today, it would be based on what the sentencing structure is today. So that case was sentenced on what the structure sentencing was in 1980. If he would have been charged 
and convicted in 1980, she went over what those charges and sentences would have been for both the rape and the murder. And both of them carried a weight of 40 to 50 years each. And then somehow within the law, that changed. So basically he was a free man for 30 plus years. And then now each one carries a weight of 17 to 20, 20, 24, 25 years, which didn't make any sense to me. And it still doesn't make any sense even after I questioned. Rhonda's family walked out, calling Adkins a monster who killed a beautiful child. But the letdowns for the family weren't done. And then two and a half months later, we get an email that that has now been cut in half and we're left at a, about a 10 year mark. So it, it just doesn't make any sense. An email from VineLink, a victim notification system that updates people on custody status and criminal case information, reading, this email is to inform you that the projected release date for Robert Adkins is January 28th, 2030. The North Carolina Department of Public Safety's website shows Atkins' conviction date as December 17th, 2020, listed as being in regular population in Alexander Correctional Institution, about an hour and a half southwest of Pilot Mountain. The total incarceration term says 25 years, but his projected release date is listed as January 20th, 2032. We have a book that we've all heard about, how to, get a, how to Get Away With Murder. You don't have to read the book anymore. You can do it and literally get away with it. But we've just been, for some reason, wrapped up with uh, a county and a group of people that were kind of anti-media. Uh, uh, but of course, I saw them, you know, on your podcast, and I was like, wow, he's one of the ones that told me not to say anything. We've talked to Kevin several times off camera about his childhood growing up in a fragmented family. There's one person that never, ever, ever, ever spoke of it, and that was Freddie. Never. It was, it was completely off the table. He was just a toddler when Rhonda was murdered, so he doesn't have any recollection of it. He had two older brothers and a younger sister but never inquired about Rhonda, never knew to, until he saw what he says was the only picture of her that was left out in the open. One picture on top of the TV stand in their grandparents' living room. I started questioning, we all did. We wanted to know who this person was. We wanted to know why this bedroom door was always closed. Um, we were forbidden to say certain things. We were forbidden to ask certain questions. Um, Lynn was literally closed. Um, my mother, her sister, she was literally closed our entire lives. His mom was about 13 years younger than Rhonda's, so she and Rhonda were close, almost like siblings, friends. But Kevin wouldn't figure all of that out until later. When you're a kid and and you keep seeing pictures, and when the name comes up, it's almost like 
the world stops and you get that look that somebody's giving you or that feeling that you feel in the air of shut up, don't say nothing else. He also didn't learn how soon after Rhonda was buried that his great-grandmother passed. But she died two weeks after Rhonda's murder. Um, they said the stress uh, caused her to have a heart attack. Um, so two weeks after Rhonda, uh, they put her to rest. They put my great-grandmother to rest because it, it just took a toll on the family. The thoughts of what he learned about Rhonda's final seconds contaminate his mind. The multiple stab wounds, the dirt as though her face had been shoved into the ground. But he admits the place where those thoughts are kept is a dark one. It just makes me wonder what she really went through, you know, and how long. Um, which one of those stabs did it take to really make her unconscious? Because just because any one of them would have led to death, how long, you know, how long did she endure what she was going through? Often left wondering about a possible third person being there when she died. I'm going to believe in my heart that the third one is most likely his brother's. Because when we did hear the story about them talking to Robert Atkins and his confessions and what he was speaking about, um, I do honestly believe that both he and his brother did what they did. Hudson says the investigation's still open. There's certain evidence he says they have that they can't talk about and have to hold on to. And that, that speaks volumes. So it's just whenever, I guess you go back to the same thing, when the stars align, um, then that final, final part of that case will be closed out. If there is a consolation, it lies in what Rhonda's mother said to Kevin. Just weeks after she learned she only had weeks left on this earth without her husband, without her daughter. I think that she held on as long as she did because she was trying to find her own peace. And one of the last things that she said in her living room before she became unconscious, so to speak, um, she couldn't wait to see Rhonda. And my great-grandparents, who she called my mom, Papa, and Freddie, She was gone. So I guess she made peace. Murder in Pilot Mountain is written by me, Michael Hennessy, edited by photojournalist Chris Weaver, and our executive producer is Kevin Daniels. We've teamed up once more for another podcast called A Country Store Killing. At that point, it was dark. And you could actually see all the blue lights. It was even before you got there. It kind of like lit the sky. Like a stadium lit up. I mean, <clears throat> lights and flashing lights and. Uh, yeah, it was a horror. 
It's what it was to me, a horror. It's the story of another family waiting decades for answers in a murder that remains unsolved to this day. But they beat, beat, and beat, and beat, and beat. He was probably done dead, and they were still beating. It was like a hate crime. Autopsy reports show Tom Fogelman was hit more than 27 times in the head with a blunt object. A man named Tom Fogelman killed in the family store his father built the year he was born. As the case has changed hands from detective to detective over the years. Just because it was uh, hasn't been solved uh, or closed at this point doesn't mean that it was perfect crime. A new detective who'd never seen anything about the case has taken it over. A fresh set of eyes. But if she goes back through all them papers like she says she's going she to. She might find something different. She may find something in there that, that has just been looked over. Perhaps a last hope for Tom's family to have a name to blame for the torment they've endured for much of their lives. I believe in what goes around, it'll come back around. I believe, I believe. I believe it'll come back. Maybe not in my lifetime. Sooner or later, sooner or later, they'll vote. Again, that's a country store killing. Please help us try to get that case closed by downloading it wherever you get your podcasts.